Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. And Tom Conlon of Savannah Parnell takes the kick out to the far side of the field. John Moore goes high for him, beats Dan O'Neill for him. Tom was a father figure in, 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 in and you know, everybody looked up at him. When, when Tom talked about football, you listened. He used to call him the gentle giant. He was a big man and he was a gentleman. That kind of stuck with him all his life. Working a farm and training and football, like, he had to be fit. And Tom Conlon takes the kick out for Law, down to this side of the field. Big and strong, he was physically fit all the time, as most farmers were. I mean, look, I was a pen pusher. I had to do things to get fit. He had to do very little. To get fit. Now he wasn't the fastest man in the world, but it'd take a good man to get round him. And up comes this dirty farmer of the Bannon Carnells coming up to take the ticket, Tom Condon. Anybody that won in our Ireland, uh, I should have summoned him, Mike Lays them. He was a hard worker, but she was as strong as a horse. He was a huge big man. Tom Conlon, the great loud fullback. Born on the 27th of January 1925, he was one of the most decorated footballers in the history of the county. From his teenage years as a minor championship winner with RD, his multiple championships and leagues with his native Stabannon, the glory of 1957 with Loud, right through to his Meath Junior Championship swan song with Drum Conrath, this was a man who did it all in a stellar career spanning three decades. Add in his Railway Cups with Leinster, and it's easy to understand why he's a player that is still held in such reverence to this day. Tom, remember, was the oldest member of Loud's 1957 All-Ireland winning team, coming out of retirement at the age of 32 to do his bit for the cause. Seven years earlier, he had experienced the bitter disappointment of losing out to Mayo. But there was much more to Tom Conlon than that glory year of 57. Around his beloved Stabannon, he was one of their heroes, a footballer and a farmer, while in later years, Drum Conrath also embraced him as one of their own. Tom Conlon was the first of the 1957 team to pass away on January 23rd, 1990. This is his story. Patrick Coma gets the ball, fits it back to Tom Conlon. Conlon, a left-footed high ball, dropping 70 yards out. Tom Conlon hailed from a family of nine, seven boys and two girls. Sadly, eight are now deceased, and the only surviving member is the youngest member of the family, Padder. Padder spent much of his life in the USA and indeed was abroad when his older sibling experienced his greatest sporting moment in 1957. All the boys played football with varying degrees of success it must be said, including Padder, and their seven-a-side team was particularly noteworthy. But rewind to those early childhood days in Stabannon and life growing up on the farm. We had this farm, my mother and father bought her way back in the late teens, I think 18 and 19. That was a big family in it and then my father died when, in 34 she died. Uh, I was born in 33. After that, that was, I was just an ordinary, a regular. Well, she had nothing, she, nobody had anything that time, you know. I remember going down to Stabannon and I was 17 or 18 and... I hadn't tuppence to buy an ice cream. I'm sure everybody was the same. And was it a big farm you had? Ah, it was just 60 acres in it. But it, was, it really wasn't big enough for the holding. There was a great holding in the very big house and everything. And then the, the, my mother kept Tom and Richie at home. I, I went and became a mechanic in RD and then I went to America. And the rest of them, Matt and Kevin, went into the grocery business and Paddy was in the pub in RD. So I had Tom from an early age, had he an interest in the farming? Oh, 
I had uh, I just kept at home uh, I kept at home whether, that, whether he liked it or not I suppose whether, but it was funny it was one thing my mother always regretted there was Richie, Richie Richie was Paddy Kevin Richie and Tom and she always regretted keeping the two home because then it meant that two years you had to buy a farm for Tom and that's how Tom was over in Mead that's how he moved to Drum Conrad eventually yeah, he brought he brought them from players they, they, they were good football and crowd in, in Drum, Drum Conrad at the time so he he bought their farm and moved over there. And tell me about Tom and uh, when he was growing up. Tom was, I think, it was only seven or eight when your when your dad died. Oh, that's a bit old. Oh, well, I was only I never met my man about my father. I was only three months old. But but by the time I got to know what was what, my father was just a memory. And, and tough times. I mean, your mother had to rear the family then. Oh, tough times. I mean, mother was a great woman. God, she was a great woman. She was only eighteen when she got married. And talk about now, you know, David, that um, he was much older than uh, my father. He had awful bad chest trouble. I think the poor man had cancer. Because they, he wouldn't have a TB because all the family, the rest of the kids used to be up laying on top of him in the bed and everything. And if he had a TB, they wouldn't have allowed it, you know, that that time. Tom Conlon's first taste of football success came with the RD Miners in 1942, but it wasn't long before he was assisting his natives to Bannon Parnells established themselves as a major force in loud adult football. Parnells were a fledgling club at the time, having only come into existence in 1934. Those early days, training and playing matches, are recalled by one of Tom's teammates at the time, Peter Lynch. We played in a, a field there up in Crowley's. I on the left, a big field, I think there was 15 or 16 acres in it. We trained in that field, we had to do four rounds around it, running, and then out onto the road and up to Woodstown Castle and back down into the hall in Stabannon and get robbed. We had to go down on the White Village lorry, the crowd, down across the field, and we had to cross the railway, the track from Marty, and out, and we had another field across. That's where the sport was. I think that was the, 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 the first again, Ramin, and then we played again, Dowdstown. Football boots, which are the cogs, would be fairly worn, so they went. But there was one that you could put in, you know, screws, screwed in. And what's the band, Peter? Who would have been your selector or your coach in the in the forties and fifties? Mahi McCone. He was down from Bampilstown. Nicholas Hannity. And uh, and tell me now, how many lads would be looking for jerseys? An awful lot. You, you couldn't have enough for all they'd be looking to play and uh, looking for a jersey. Peter can also recall the days going to school in Stabannon. The old school was located at the back of the church. Don't screw. I probably was ahead of him. There was a change of uh, a schoolmaster. There was a man called Dylan. He was over in, he was a schooler in Roscommon. He was shifted into Stabannon. He nearly killed everybody that was in it. And he'd say, God be good to the little children that I left behind in Ross come on. <laughs> and yet bloody mites And then it would batter in the stick for nothing, you know. You couldn't learn anything like and throw you one side and up to the road and start to read. That, and the window open below that he could hear you playing. And says, I'll put lungs on you. Well, after those boyhood days in the classroom in Stabannon, some of the Conlans later attended school in RD. Jim Rowe, who was one of Tom's winning teammates in 1957, was very much on opposite sides at club level and speaks of the great rivalry which developed between Stabannon and his own club at St Mary's. I can go back to my boyhood and remember the Conlans coming in on their bicycles from uh, Stabannon into the school in RD because Tom actually played, won his first medal with the RD Miners. So uh, I knew I knew I knew them all coming in. I mean, there were more than the Conlans, there were Burns, and there were other people. But uh, there was fierce rivalry with Stabannon and Hardy. Fierce. It was a healthy rivalry. Oh, it was a healthy rivalry, and it was a good one. It was good for football and good for Middle Louth and good for Louth in the end of the day. You know. 
Around Stabannon at the time, it was a very close-knit community, and as Paddock Conlon explains, some of the large families provided the backbone of the football team. The Culligans, I mean, they were the opposite. They had all girls, except one and one by... And Jemmy McDonald's wife is a Culligan. The eldest of the Culligan married Jemmy. But Stabannon was always a... It was like a band of brothers. You had now, you had three or four Conlons, you had a, three Burns, and a couple of more Lynches. You know, and opposite. And, uh, but there was never... You know, you hear people's clubs squabbling when this one was left off. But no matter what was made in Stabannon, you never had any grumbling. In 49, I had four brothers on the team. And poor Richie, he was the second eldest. They never counted, but the rest of them all was counted. He was as brainy as football as a whole bit of them. From the other end of Stabannon, there were the McGrains. Larry was the most prominent, and in 1951, he played alongside his three brothers, Jim, Huey and Nicky, on the team that won the second division championship. He also lined out alongside Tom Conlon in the senior championship win of 1954. Larry too has fond memories of his childhood days and the part played by football. It was great. I mean, uh, the youngest of a family of nine, all farmers, walked to school, Stabano, which was must be about two miles. And then when I got a bit, a bit older, I had a bicycle. <laughs> and... Um, it was the old school, of course. It wasn't too hard to get involved in football in those days? Oh, not at all. Not at all. No, no. Because uh, there, was, there was no real football until you into minor, and then it took off from minor, you know. And it wasn't just the boys who were torn out to support Parnells on match days. Peter Lynch can remember bicycle trips to as far away as Monaghan. Nothing but football. Women and everything was in there that have a great following. There wouldn't be one. It was all on bikes and no cars. On the bicycle and riding down as far as I did skiing. When you were playing in Castle Bellingham, where did you, where did you have to change? Down in the, in the pub in uh, Paddy Bottoms. Paddy Bottoms was a great span in the house. Uh, at that time, to walk up like up uh, the road up to the grove field, and then the game it started in there. So, Peter, you had Bournes in Castle Bellingham when you played at the Grove. What about the pubs in Stabannon? Oh, yes, there was always two pubs there. There, there's where the crack would be in the pubs after the match and things like that. And, and when you went to RD to play the Marys, your neighbours, where did you where did you tug out? Was it Paul Muldoon's? That's oh. right. And somebody tells me there, there's a song about that. Yeah, the boy that's making your money, Paul Muldoon, with the stick of sugary candy. It's the banner boys to be surely round they go to Mass on Sunday, they don't come back till Monday. You're the boy that's making your money, Paul Muldoon. <laughs> Well, in 1936, just two years after their foundation, Stabannon scored a major breakthrough when they won their first championship, a Division II title. But it was in the 40s that the club really announced their arrival as a major force. They won the Division II championship again in 1941, and then two years later it was the county junior title, a team Tom Conlon formed part of, lining out at right corner back. The first Cardinal O'Donnell Cup success followed two years later, and then in 1949, history was made when Parnells won the county senior title for the very first time, beating arch-rival St Mary's in a low-scoring final at the Athletic Grounds in Dundalk. They were also the first-time winners of the famous Joe Ward Cup. Again, Tom Conlon was part of the defence, and he was joined in the team by three of his brothers. Peter Lynch again. Tom came in full-back mostly. And had he a good game in the 49 final? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, had to have with opposition. The Marys were very strong. The Marys were strong and still able to beat them. And you were on that panel? I was on it, yeah. A lot of wides. I know the, the Goo Mooney used to play with, with the Marys. Paddy Kelly, the few good players. It was a good few county men playing. And tell me, Peter, did he ever play the middle of the field? Well, in no time, he, he would be shifted into it. If there were a bit, you know, in there, Tom was a great man, a tall man, you know, tall, able to catch great powers and everything. And would he score? Would he score much for Stabannon? Oh, uh, he didn't score much. I think he might have scored a couple of points, you know. And that physical strength that Peter Lynch talks about stemmed from Tom's work on the farm. He was naturally fit and used that to good effect on the football pitch. The Conickies were close friends of the Conlans, and Joe Conickie can remember a few occasions around the yard and in the fields when he was left in awe of the great man. We used to keep a department board, and that's how he'd be here, you know. He'd be over on Bikers House. That time, when the job would be done, the shed, you'd be letting the say, you have to keep everything real tight, and I'd have to go in and keep himself back, you know. And Tom would say, let her out nice and easy. He could catch her with his two hands and lift her up and pull her in the trailer. 
That's God's truth. Good practice for his football. Exactly. Oh, he was as strong as a horse. He really was as strong as a horse. The mechanic in Smith's and Dundalk. Smith's was a David Brown main dealer. Connors bought a David Brown tractor off them. And this chap, Johnny Cunningham is his name, he's from Carrick McCross. Johnny was telling me that he was up putting a dicky camera, that was a cocklifter, and fitting a horn to this tractor. This new tractor was bought out of Smith's. And Tom, and he thinks it was Richie. There was an eight-acre field in him starting to fit it. In the middle of fitting the dicky camel, he was taken away from us to do a job. And when he came back at half nine that summer's evening, the field of hay was on cocks with the two boys. He said, and Tom Conlon could lift a half a cock of hay on the fork when he was that time to be cocking it the whole way, you know. He said, and he never forgot him for it. There was no hanging around with Tom? Oh, there, would be no, there was no hanging around with Hanny when it comes to work. Tom Conlon made his Lodge senior debut in 1944, just a year after helping Stabannon win the county junior title at the expense of neighbours Dunlear. But it was the rivalry with another of their next-door neighbours, St Mary's, which was to prove one of the most intense and intriguing for most of Tom's footballing career. Kevin Behan won five senior championship medals with the RD men, one of which came at the expense of Stabannon in 1955. A year earlier, he was in the losing team against the same opposition. Kevin was another of the heroes of 57, having been raised in the football hotbed of RD in the 40s. He developed his football skills in the De La Salle School and later St. Patrick's in Armagh. Kevin believes the fact that the Marys and Stabannon were so strong during that time benefited the county as a whole. It was a powerful rivalry. You know, and it did an awful lot for county football as well. Now, there wouldn't be any love lost between Hardy and Stabannon, but I mean, I tell you, you had to stand up to be counted if you're playing Stabannon. 49, of course, that was Stabannon's big year, was the first time they won the senior championship, the first time that Joe Ward was played for, wasn't it? That's right, and they won it, and I think the Marys were favourites at the time, and the Marys had a good team, but fair to you, Stabannon, they won on the day, and that was it. They were tough, hard boys, you know. Tom, thankfully to God, was far enough away from me, because he was a big, strong, hard man. Any time he ever played any game of football, he never gave less than 101%. Some, some people would say when... Uh, the likes of the Marys and Stabannon were strong at club level loud football in general at county level was strong I totally agree with it I think if you're football strong and mid loud and you had the Marys and Stabannon going hell for leather Stabannon had their green and gold jerseys we had a blue jersey but put a red jersey on any of them and we were all, we were one you know, and there was no animosity then once you put on the, the county jersey. But, by Jesus, I said, when you were playing against them, that was different. <laughs> the 49 senior championships, the Bannons maiden success at that level, Lawrence, that came just a little bit before your time. That's right, it did. It did. That, that, that was a huge event. The pub in Stabannon, there was tractors and trailers and combine harvest and everything out that, outside that pub for the whole week. <laughs> you would have been very young now at that stage. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was, it was, it was memorable. Good times to be involved with, Lawrence. Yeah, certainly in the early 50s and from early 50s to mid 50s. So it was great. And then, you know, the, the decline started. After 1949, the next time St Mary's and Stabannon were to cross pads in a senior final was in 1954. Again, it was Stabannon who prevailed. Patsy Coleman, who was right half back on the team of 57, says his team, St Mary's, went into that 54 decider with high expectations. The beaters that day, we were very, very surprised to get beaten, to tell you the truth. We thought we were going to have a handy enough match, but it's a turn out didn't work that way. And your impressions of Tom from that particular game? Oh, he was very strong. Very, very strong, but very fair. Very fair, and there's no doubt in order about it. All those great celebrations in, 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 in Stabannon, even myself, I was very friendly with uh, Tom's brother Pella and it was even at the celebrations myself Bianton Stabannon on the same <laughs> night oh the rivalry it was something unreal like, it was like a mini All-Ireland that's the way to describe it now with the Marys and Stabannon just a mini All-Ireland it was taken so very seriously everyone just put their head on the lane just that was it and adding a bit of spice to the whole scenario was the fact that you worked with quite a few Stabannon boys oh I did to be sure so I, I worked with Pedder at the time at the whole time when this was taking place I had on myself we worked at McGee's in the garage in RD and the banter that went on there was uh, unbelievable What about Tom and the rest of the lads? I knew Tom very well very very well Tom would be a great friend of mine and a great man to advise you on how to play and what to do and what not to do you know one great match we had in Drada was in 55 
when we beat Stepan in a point that day. Now, Tom was very, very disappointed that day. I, I shook hands with Tom after the match. Like, I would have been fairly friendly with him, but Tom actually was in tears after that match, and that's genuinely true. And that was the way he wanted this club. He played for his club just with his heart, the same as he played with the county. Absolutely powerful. One of Tom Conlon's club mates in the mid-1950s was Francis Reynolds. He was Stabannon's sub-goalkeeper at the time. He too remembers that final of 1954, but also a certain league game against the RD men. I remember one day we were playing the league match in Stabannon. Tom was playing centre field, but his usual players was full back. And we were playing the Great Mary's team of that time. O'Brien, Behans, uh, Coleman's, all these boys which was players. At half-time, they led us by 12 points at half-time. Uh, so in the second half, Tom came back in, and I can tell you, he didn't spare his language with us. He told us where to get off, and uh, when the whole complete change in the second half was uh, the beat us two points in the finish. This play the other fellas put up when the boss himself was at home at full back was nobody's business. Tom was a great motivator in the dressing room. Oh yes, yes. I mean he tell you what to do and you did it and that was that. We used to ride down the bicycles from Dundee, big Joe Callan and myself and that Joe lived here in Dundee at the time. We'd go down on the bicycles for training and there was no visios or anything in that time like I mean. Uh, but there was plenty of good the Bannon supporters there at night to give you a rub when it was over and that was the end of the visios. At that time Matt was playing, Jim was playing, uh, Richie played a bit as well. Kevin, they've all played, but that particular day in the, that we beat them below, and uh, it was in the dark, I think, that game, the, uh, the senior final. And I remember in the paper uh, the week before, Stephen McGiverton, he was secretary of the Marys at the time, and he said, The day will be ours, he says. But I remember just after when the final was over, I remember crossing over the field and I said to him, I said, Stephen, I said, whose is the day now? That was 54. Uh, it was a sweet victory. The following year, though, the Mary's got the revenge on you. Oh, yes. I mean, to say uh, that final wasn't harder, but I mean, the, the, the Mary's won that one. Well, Tom Conlon's commitment to Stabannon was total, and that team of the late 40s and early 50s helped inspire the next generation of players around the Midlouth club. As well as their farming connections to the Conlons, the Connockies, and Joe in particular, found a shared passion in football. When I started first playing under 15, you'd be over with the boys looking at them training, and you'd be behind the goals collecting the, the balls would be going wide, because it'd be about 40 playing in the field, and we'd be out at the back of the goals, between the goals and the road and kicking the balls back out to them. You'd be there looking up at them, to a guard switched away. There's no question about that in their minds. Tom, Tom was a bit older than you. Oh, much older, much older. But you'd be looking at Tom and Patsy Burden and only Lynch. God, would be good to the mowers now. Then when I did get one or two runs with them, I'd be maybe 17 at the time. I was playing, playing mine and I got one or two runs when the senior team was they were going downhill at the time and to be sort of stuck. And Patsy Lynch would be one of the lads that had, was on too. And we played a few senior games, which we thought then we were great men. But it was then the town started coaching us. And when we would be training beyond, he'd always come, if there was 10 laps to be done in the field, He'd always say when the tenth lap would be up, now lads, two laps more wouldn't do us one bit of harm, and your tongue would be out, but he'd make it still go around the, the field. And uh, if you lag behind him, he'd end up dragging your heels behind you now. And then another word of his was uh, that thing you had to be very careful going out gates, because cattle would be around, you'd be, whoever would be out to get make sure shut. Tom was saying used to be, last house shuts the gate, that's what the man said to the bull. And during Joe Conicky's time in the Stabannon team, Tom Conlon's role wasn't confined solely to defence. He'd be switched around from midfield to full-back. I was left full. I was always left full. And Jerry Cairn, God be good to him too, Jerry was right full. And the half-back line that him was uh, Peter Donnelly was centre-half, Paddy Butterley left-half, and right-half was Matt, Matt Condon. And the centre of the field would be usually Tom and Tom Sherman or Tom and Mickey, whichever, you know, fitted in the best. The half-forward line would be Richard Lynch, Lance McGrain, Patsy Lynch and Tony Mattis. Patsy Lynch and Tony Mattis was on the left-hand side of the field. Uh, I think Patsy Lynch was on the corner. Euler, that was Tony Mattis, would be on the right wing. Lance McGrain was on the left wing. Tom Sherman above in the corner. Joe Dorian on the square. Mickey Reynolds was on the 40. We played together. With the, well, I did with that team now for 
as long as they were together, you know, which I suppose maybe five years, and then the disintegrated naturally should have had to. But we kept going as best we could, you know. Well, Paddock Conlon can also remember all those great duels between Stebanon and the Marys, as well as his brother's elevation to the county senior team. Six years on from his debut, Tom had the honour of captaining Loud in the All-Ireland Final of 1950, but alas, it wasn't to be against Mayo. MacDonald clears for Loud. Regan speeds it up after a struggle and sends to Roger Lynch. His dramatic shot for a winning goal has win beaten, but it is narrowly wide. When the final whistle sounds... Mayo have won their second All-Ireland title by a display of dash and courage that becomes a champion. He was captain in 50. I think it was the most disappointing day in my life, you know. So I was only about 17. You were at that game? I was. Uh, can, you, can you remember when Tom was called into the loud senior panel first? Uh, have any memories of that, Paddock? Not really. He gradually came into it, you know. But you see, you, that time you go up and play in the Leinster Championship, then he had, he had retired. He, was, he wasn't the fastest now, man, I <laughs> leave. That and footbacks weren't. I saw Paddy O'Brien and Kevin Heffern and give him the run around and he just walked off and sat behind the goals and he was still a hero you know but so that's the way it was you had to be big and strong and catch, be able to catch the ball then be full back that time well, that, that 1950 defeat that hit Tom Hardy he took that yeah, fairly bad yeah to every bar with, what's it, like having the LC over the, but football in there was good at that time 47 to 54 Stabannon of course particularly strong Stabannon yeah, uh, and RD so there were some great duels between the neighbouring yeah, clubs the big, the, and the Ireland's. Oh, the Ireland's were a hard team to beat. And the, 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 there were devils. They used to say they'd be waiting at the, t- at the station for the new fellas coming in if he f- had our footballers and have them signed before they'd be in the t- <laughs> town. But they had a good now. The, the two Fagans, Frankie Fagan and Jim Quigley and a few others. Well, that 1950 All-Ireland final defeat was a bitter pill to swallow for Loud and their supporters. Little did he know it at the time, but a young Frank Lynch was to play a major role in helping erase some of the bad memories of that agonising loss just seven years later. But in 1950, he was a mere slip of a lad. I was too small to go to the match, as I was told. I remember the day before the match, I was working at the trashing. I think it was in Carl's and Logan Green. I was doing the chaff, as it were. And I would have been only about nine or ten, but I thought I was going to get a lift in Carl's car that day but it didn't happen and the number of the car I remember was IY6842 but I didn't get going that day so I had to stay at home what I do remember about the match Loud were beaten okay Tom was captain of the team at that time he played full back on that team and of course he was a big the big man of the team too but Loud had a great team and um, a cousin of my own Roger Lynch was playing on the right corner that day and we were all expecting them to score the winning goal but it almost come about it didn't and Mayo went on to win by 2-5 to 1-6 to, to but I do remember my three brothers being at the match that was Brendan who was killed not so long back a number of years back and Donnie and uh, Joe but the two of them came in and they sat in the front room of the house and two of them were laughing and the other was crying that was Joe the younger of the three and I couldn't understand why he was crying, you know, and was, of course, because they were beaten. But the other two were laughing, and they were laughing because they were laughing at Joe because he was after eating a bag of sweets, papers and all, during the match. And that I remember. And we were beaten. It was demoralising. It was sad. And we had to put up with it. We were unlucky because there was an argument over a goal. The next time, I remember Tom Conlon playing also in Knockbridge playing seven-a-side football and the seven Conlon brothers were playing and that took my fancy because we were also playing juvenile football and that was a great carnival Knockbridge used to organise it for a number of years and uh, that particular year in 1949 I think we won the, the under-14 league and um, the Conlons I think if memory serves me right won the seven-a-side there were six brothers and one no relation. Sammy Conlon came from Castle Bellingham. No relation, but you had Jim, Pat, Tom, Peder, Richie, uh, Matt, and um, they played on a seven-a-side, and there were, it was great to look at them. Uh, six brothers and one Conlon, seven Conlons on the one seven-a-side, and they won that competition in Knockbridge. Kevin was a very good footballer, and so was Matt. Matt was very solid, and Peder done his own thing as 
in his own time. You know, he wouldn't be as good as the rest, but he was, he'd always fit it in. Sammy was a great way forward. And the final, I think I'll say, as I can, the seven-a-side final was against, I think it was Oliver Plunkett's, which the Condens won. My mother and father was from the finish alone, and that's why they, they were running the carnival in 49, and i never forget it was the day it made me pay them, and uh, we were playing the seven-a-side alone, and it was more to just um, for the, the carnival to be successful, you know, the, but then it got to be too much, you know, you had to win everything then, you know. but we went out anyway, and now I, I was hopeless. I'm not joking you, I wasn't, no football on me at all, I couldn't kick a ball. Tom was the top man, Union White, author of Heroes of 57, the complete story of Loud's all Ireland victory of that year and a success that Tom Conlon was very much part of. Union, at the start of that championship campaign against Carlo in the Leinster, uh, Tom Conlon wasn't part of the Loud team. In fact, by that point, he was two years retired. So how did his return to the fold come about, Union? Well, it would appear that Stephen White was the main instigator in Tom coming back. Stephen must have seen something in the team early on, even though they, they didn't perform that well against Carlo. But he obviously along with others was looking at it and said well maybe if we could strengthen in, in key areas we have a chance and um, fullback was one of those he encountered Tom one day uh, I think they went for a spin and as far as Carlingford O'Meath and he kind of half persuaded Tom to, to come on board at that stage and then Brian Reynolds being a Stabannon man was a selector and I think he put in another word and, and then you know Tom was back on board and he seemed happy enough to, to, to go for it you know I don't think in the end it took a lot of persuasion um, so yeah he was back on board and then the, the, the story started from there really but I mean it was a big decision because he had been two years out of the scene uh, Union and to come back and to put his reputation in the line like that it was it was it was huge decision for him uh, you know Tom Conlon was one of the heroes of, of loud football and I suppose he had a lot to lose coming back um, even maybe his, his first game back against Wexford it, it wasn't his best you know I suppose he was maybe a bit exposed he was a bit ring rusty uh, and people were uh, even at that stage beginning to question it um, but you know he in the end he, he proved that it was the right decision that he had a huge hunger when he when he did come back uh, he obviously, like others then, saw that there was some potential, but it wasn't a case of him jumping on the bandwagon. He was there, he was determined to, to give it all and lead from the front. He wasn't uh, He wasn't just hoping that others would drag him across the line. He was uh, one of the main men as soon as he came in, and he, 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 I suppose he lifted everything. You know, a player like Tom Conlon coming back into the squad, not only did you have his ability, but it would say to others, especially maybe younger players in the team, Jesus, there is something here that we can, we can work on, and it would, you know, lift it players another 15 20 percent Jim Rowe he was retired uh, I didn't play in the first two games either and then suddenly we heard uh, two people are coming back so I got in luckily enough on the tail end of somebody else but it was um, Tom Conlon and Jimmy McDonald, two ends of the field and very important players they were but Tom brought a great solidity to that team and he had two very good wing backs Ollie Riley, God rest him, he was a, a what I would call a classic footballer. No dirt, no hard. He was hard, but he was fair. But he was really classical. And then you had Jim, uh, me and God rest him as well in the other corner. And Jim was one tough man. And he had his little iron medal in his pocket already with Meath back in the, in the late 40s. But Tom brought a whole cohesion to that full back line. And Tom was never beaten in that year by any full forward. And he meant some of the, well, the best that were around at the time. Kevin Heffernan from Dublin, uh, Neely Duggan, Cork. And none of them got the better of him. What can you remember of the day itself? Before the game in the hotel, he gave a bit of an inspirational speech. <clears throat> he did. Tom, well, he said it a few times coming up to the game. He would get people around him and he'd say, look, you fellas have no idea what it's like to lose in our island. He said, it's dreadful. I ended up, he said, in 50. I thought I was the greatest. And I thought I was going to win an RRA medal. And I ended up in tears. And coming from Tom, you know, you, you accepted what he said. He, he was a very straight man. You know, you went out and you... Uh, what he, oh, yeah, he said, <laughs> if anybody's not pulling their weight, I'll pull them off the field, he said. <laughs> Myself, I won't wait for the selectors to do it. <laughs> Dan O'Neill gave a great speech at halftime. I mean, Dan was a, a one-off, you know. He was a, a very good footballer. Different footballer altogether from Jimmy O'Donnell, the other Mayo man. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. 
Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Amy again was a sort of a classical footballer. Dana was, was a real strong, old-type midfielder. But uh, Dana was a great man to get up and give a speech. There was a huge determination on Tom Conlon's behalf to make sure at the start of that second half that what happened to him in 50 wasn't going to happen again. Absolutely, absolutely. I think he went round everybody and he just said to them, look, don't for God's sake come off that field beaten. You know, he was, he was really determined. And he was a very determined man, very strong man. Patsy Coleman. Oh, sure, he was him that got us there. Happened back just a step forward back to do our little semi-final. He was playing on a fella called Higgins. He, I tell you, he was a strong player. But a week after, if you saw Tom's leg and his tie, it was black and blue. And he played away with it like if it never happened. That was him. Frank Lynch. Tom was, he was always looked up to by all the players. Okay, you had players like Stephen White and Jimmy McDonald were very experienced players. But anything that Tom said was always listened to very, very carefully. His cry at that particular time, particularly at half time, was right. I played in this All-Ireland final before. I know what it was to lose. We are not leaving this pitch without winning this match and coming home with the Summer World Cup. That was his delivery at half time. And he, he more or less said, look, I cried the day we, we lost the match against Mayo. That's not going to happen today. And this was at half time and Dan O'Neill spoke as well. And this was a great lift. It was great to get fired. But we were always expecting a big game from Tom anyway. Tom had a master. He had a great game that day. He was one of the best players in the field. He was, you know, himself and Stephen White had a great second half. I mean, there was a fair few years between yourself and Tom. You were the baby of the team and he was the elder statesman. Something like 16 years between us, you know. And they used to call us and, and we'd go away anywhere on a trip or anything like that. I'd be away from home and we'd stay overnight they used to call us we'd have to put the father and son together Needless to say there was a large Stabannon representation in the Crow Park crowd that day against Cork among the loud congregation were Joe Conachy and Peter Lynch Crook Park just that to me it was like going to Australia you now you didn't know where you were when the game was over you didn't know whether it worked this way or that way but you were going wherever you seen the red and white colours go and you went went with it the excitement I'll never forget Tom Sherman carrying Tom off the field Shoulder high up on the shoulders. Tank down was 32 when he came back to, to uh, play and uh, made a remarkable difference to the team in itself. It steadied up the whole back lane. The 57 final, Peter, did you travel? To, were you at that game? Were you the All Ireland final of 57? Yes. Uh, yes, in the lower part of the, the, the stand. We had tickets, you'd have no tickets. You could get ones that you'd have to climb up to the top of the stand. And can you remember when the full-time whistle went at Crow Park against Cork? How did you feel? Oh, it was a dread. Everybody went mad up and the air went mad. around with the terror. And can you remember the loud team coming home and when they came into RD? Oh, they did, yeah. They went into the banner too with the cup. Down around. That cup was going around for a long time. Bone fires to no end. Uh, Rootstown Cast said there was a big bone fire and a big flag on it. Could be so for miles around. One man who was missing from the crowd at Crow Park that September afternoon was Tom's younger brother, Padder. By that time, he was on the other side of the Atlantic. I went to America in 57 and he was married in April around that time. His first child was born in. in 
January, a girl, a little girl, and I remember writing to me telling me there was a little girl. So it was, it was all go for me. Got married, oh. one in all Ireland, and then the baby arrived soon after. I, I know, but it wouldn't be all go for Tom because he was laid back. If the banner was out of it, Tom wouldn't open the, the bag from one senior game to the other with a load. And if, if we were playing, we said next Sunday, he'd open the bag and give the mother the, the tugs and the, and the stockings to wash. And that was it. Bush Padder didn't lose out entirely on the joy of the 1957 win. The wireless meant he was kept informed of what was happening at Crow Park. I remember as well as Mike Hogan was a great man for loud in, in, in America. I went out to his house. There was a chap from Bellabelia Cross, a fellow called Bradley. Actually, his brother, the gunner. Years ago, we used to play with the Mitches, I think, and Brandon, Brandon was out, and I went out to Brandon, and we listened to the game in, in Long Island. Great excitement. Uh-huh. But then, you see, the game was over, that was it. I came up to Gaelic Park, I was, it was the same if Loud wasn't playing at all, unless it was the Loud people. You know. But by, by, by all accounts, Tom gave a, a masterful performance. That's how they described it as. Yeah, he did, he did. But in America, I mean, it was so far removed from, from Loud, there was obviously in America no kind of celebration. You were away from all that kind of thing. Oh, yeah, there was no kidding. But I got all the papers for the following weeks and that. I was lucky enough now, when they came out in, in 58, Jim, my brother Jim, he was a priest, and he was there too. Jim took my mother out, and there was three of us in the polo grounds, which I never, ever thought I'd see three cardinals in America at the one time. And my mother came out for a holiday when Tom came out. What can you remember of the aftermath? Can you remember the homecoming in, in your, your own RD, Jim? Indeed, I remember. If you're going to draw it, we got it hard to get through Drogheda, never mind to get to RD. To get us into the... the White Horse and Drogheda. White Horse and Drogheda. To get us in there, they had to put planks from the lorry into the wind, into a window to get us into the building. But we ended up at RD at about three or four in the morning, but you didn't care. You know, it was marvellous. It was a great turnout. Can you, can you remember Tom's reaction at the, the homecoming? Oh, Tom was delighted. And uh, he said to... Uh, I think it was Denver O'Brien, he said to him, Look, you're, you're feeling great now, you've, you, you've got your Ireland medal, but I'm feeling twice as good. He said that I've got mine, having missed one. <laughs> ah, he was a grand man. Was Tom a lover of training or would he train much? He never failed to be there. Jim Quigley did all the work with us. And at that time, we had selectors such as Mickey McCone, Brian Reynolds, uh, Jimmy Matthews, who was a former chairman of the county board, and also Joe Burke from RD. Tom played for Leinster, too. He was always nearly a regular on himself. And he, he had competition, fierce competition with Paddy O'Brien of Mead now at that time. Paddy O'Brien of Mead was top class full back at the time, and Tom had competition there. But very often, Tom would be selected. No doubt about it, Ewan, and a masterstroke by the loud players, his, his, the senior players, and the mentors at the time, uh, bringing him back for 57. Yeah, it was. As I say, you know, if you get someone like that back into the team, it, it lifts everything everybody especially in um, in a team where there's a lot of young players you know he, he Ollie Riley was 20 beside him likes of Patsy Coleman uh, in defence as well fellas like that need uh, encouragement need uh, someone that, that'll talk to them need a leader and, and Tom was that, that sort of man you know by, by all accounts he would talk lads through the through a game without getting over excited but you know he, he knew what he, he knew the game he knew what he expected of other players and they respected that he wasn't shouting and roaring at, at them for the sake of it he wasn't getting boys into positions maybe to protect himself you know as, as an older player he was doing everything for, for the good of the team and that's that's the message that came across from, from his colleagues. The last championship game he played here was, it was in 1958 against Westmead, the first round of the championship when we beat Westmead. We went then on our trip to America in 58 towards the end of May and um, Tom played in the polo grounds and he played in Gaelic Park. When he returned from America, he never again wore a jersey for loud because he was rather annoyed and more than annoyed, I would say, over the happenings at Loud County Board level and the manner in which Jim Quigley, who had done so much for the county in previous years and also as a player, the manner in which he was treated. It was terrible. And I think the Loud players must bear some of the blame for what happened to Jim Quigley. But that's another day's story. He played probably one of the best games he ever played for Loud out in New York. He was in great shape, great form, and it was a, it wasn't right that he was let retire. But that was Tom. If Tom made up his mind, you know that was that. There was no going back. There was no going back, and he, he retired, and it was a great, great pity. 
But I think that the whole US thing was a, and Tom would say this himself, was a mistake. It came at the wrong time. We came home, you can imagine 20 or 30 fellows over there, away for the first time from home, having a good time. <laughs> and then coming back and facing the dubs, who were still seething from the previous year, and it didn't work out. In spite of hanging up his boots with Loud in 1958, Tom Conlon continued to play club football with Stabannon for a couple of years after. By the late 50s, Parnells were on the decline and indeed found themselves back in the junior grade. That 1954 senior championship victory over the Marys must have seemed like a long time ago. But Tom wasn't one to see the team stuck. Joe Conicky again. I asked him one day in Stabannon after training because there was talk of him giving it up with us in Stabannon. I said, Tom, God, you'll give us another year till we get a year older and maybe more old-fashioned. And his answer to me was, Joe, he says, when you see a young fella passing you, it's time to draw the line and give it up. But uh, he didn't. When we went back down junior, Stabannon went for broke again. Tom come back to... And we got to the semi-final of the Junior Championship to push the Pats behest that year. That was 16, I think. And uh, he was there for everything. And even work, uh, you know, work maybe to be done to the field, around the field. Well, he wouldn't be the only one. He had plenty of other players there. Everything was done manually and done with a, a shovel. And there's no loaders on tractors or diggers to be got. Everything was done voluntary. By this time, Tom was happily married and he was the proud father of the first of four children, Breege. It was then that the next chapter in Tom's life began with his move to County Meath and in particular Drum Conrad. Farming ran through his veins and when the opportunity presented itself to buy a farm on the outskirts of the village, it was a chance he simply couldn't turn down. But as brother Padder explains, it was a break from the tillage operation he was accustomed to back in Stabannon. A different type of farming altogether. That the farm he bought was a bad farm, but it was very hilly. Samrock was the name of the farmer in Stabannon. I just got on pretty well then. He went into the dairy business then, and I did rightly in the dairy business. And Three of the Conlon children, Thomas, Trina and Margaret, were born and raised in Drumconrad. However, Breege arrived before the big move came about. Born in Castle Bellingham, I lived there for a while and then we moved to Drumconrad and I remember it, it was around my fourth birthday when we moved. So I probably could maybe while in Stabannon as well, I just can't remember, but I'm sure we did spend some time in Stabannon as well as Castle Bellingham. Your mum, she was a Hamill from Castle Bellingham? She was a Hamill from Castle Bellingham, yeah. They had the pub there in Castle Bellingham and the the heart of the village. Growing up in, in Drumconrath, what was life like then when you moved out to the farm? Did you did you get in, involved in any of the work or what was it like? Oh, we did. We all done our fair share. There'd be a row on a Sunday morning who was getting up to feed the cows or, or get the cows in. We always have to put the cows in before they came home from early mass. And if we weren't up, it was God help us. <laughs> Or, and then, you know, on Saturdays, we done the, the yard duties on Saturdays, clean out the sheds. There was no much tractors or machine, well, machinery that time, but it was all manual labour. We all done it. And, and did the farm work, did it interfere much with your schoolwork? No. You'd got your chores in the evening when you come home, whatever the regulars, to get the sticks in and the few bits to be done. But no, homework was homework, but that had to be done. I always remember the cows and like, you know, the milking of the cows and you go off to the beach and let it be a Sunday or whatever. But we had to be home for milking and milking, everything revolved around milking. So, you know, you go off maybe after milking in the morning, but you had to be home by five o'clock for the cows had to be milked in the evening and whatever. But that was it. And that was that's the way we grew up and that's the life we knew and didn't know any different. Well, son Thomas now runs the farm in Drumconrad, but he says the family could have ended up a few miles further over the road. Well, I think originally they, were, they had looked at a farm in Nabba and uh, they didn't go for that. And then they came here. I think it was Claire's the home before that. And I think it was 63 when they, they moved over. And I mean, your, your, your dad, he was, a, he was a hard worker from his days on the, on the home farm in Stabannon. And uh, I mean, he wasn't afraid of hard work, that's for sure. But that was his life. He was hard work and it probably showed through in his football too because any man that ran into him they knew it from his physical work you know I suppose you've heard stories down through the years fellas that came up against him how tough an opponent he was oh I've did I've heard several stories and you know as I say a quiet man to mark but if you need him you knew all about it <laughs> Well, in Drumconrath, Tom Conlon's relocation to the outskirts of the village certainly didn't go unnoticed. The Callans were a big part of the local team and community at the time, with no fewer than seven brothers giving great service in the red and white. 
One of the seven, Nicky, served the club as a player official and supporter. He can remember vividly what happened when the Conlans first arrived. I remember well coming to Drumconlet and uh, all the local farmers in Stepmanen came and ploughed the land for him to get him started off. Tom was a hard goer. He was a great worker, great farmer, good farmer. And there was great, great big buzz when Tom came into the village. You ran a shop in the village? Yeah, the shop in the village at the time, yeah. And, and you, you would have been well aware of, of his football capabilities? Oh, sure I would, yeah, sure. My sister was married to Dan O'Neill and uh, sure he was with the, the Louds on the Loud team as well. And, and Tom was, when Tom was finished playing with Loud, he was, mustn't take any interest in Drunk Conrad. But um, after a while, we had a good committee, Andrew O'Reilly came, and he was interested in getting uh, the team going again. And we had a great manager, Mead, Eddie Carey, Penny Hapney, Patsy Dunn. And there was a big effort. They said, we're going to give this a good try. But when Tom arrived in Drum Conrad, he, he had no intention of no, uh, playing football. No, no Tom never, football wasn't mentioned to Tom at this stage at all at all. So how did, it, how did it come about then that he ended up in the team of 63? We started off in the championship for that year and we beat Carlinston with the, the top team. They were the team that everyone thought was going to win the championship. We went and played Carlinston and we beat Carlinston. And the following Sunday, Sunday after, we had to play... Minority in Carlinston and Minority Beers. So that set us back a bit. So then after that, we had to play Killallan and we played some Bridges and something like that. And Father O'Reilly and the boys up on the field practicing and training. She was only kicking the ball. Nobody trained on doing it, just playing the ball. Tom Conlon wasn't even mentioned at this stage. We won the divisional final. Played, had to play Carlinston in the divisional final. A ding dong game was a great game. And uh, we got that far. And then we had to move. Winter was coming in. I think the final was played, I think, the Sunday before Christmas. The county junior final. The county junior final. And um, we had to play, and we borrowed lights from R.D. St. Mary's, went down to Tom Conlon's field to... Uh, Do a bit of training. Play training under the lights. And uh, some of the boys said, who would we get now that would give, encourage us and give us a bit of a shot on? And I don't know why Aidan McGuinness was suggested. And who'll go to see him? So Mickey Crosby and me said, Mickey Crosby... Frankie McGuire and Paddy Dalton. Three made hill lads. And they came to Drumcanna that year. Three fair good lads now, you know, they were great help. And it was Aidan McGuinness who coached Drum Conrad to that 1963 victory. The RD native was yet another link to the Loud team of 1957. That year he had the distinction of being the only one of the Loud panellists dropped in the early rounds before returning to the fold. Naturally, he was already well known to Tom Conlon, not only from his county days, but the many battles which ensued between St Mary's and Stabannon. Aidan takes up the story of how his role with Drum Conrad came about. I went to Drum Conrad and watched them play once or twice because I didn't want to commit myself as they were no good. But they were, quite, they, were, they, were, they were a very balanced team. Came along to the semi-final. We were playing a team that was very strong. They had two fellas that had played with Mead and the two of them had played with Linster. <laughs> you know, so we were kind of up against it. So one of the lads, a couple of the lads said to me, any chance of Conlon playing, Tom playing? And maybe a chance of Maiden to said, you know. So I went over to Tom anyway, and we were training in Tom's Haggard with St Mary's lights because it was late in the season. And that's where we were going. And the boys would come down from Dublin. So I ventured over to Tom anyway and I had a chat with Tom. And I said to Tom, uh, any chance you're playing with these boys? I uh, give them a bit of a lift. Oh, Aidan says, he should. I wouldn't be any good, says he to me. Well, says I, they're very anxious, says I, that you give it a go, says I. And she, you're fit enough, says I, you're farming away there and there's no bother on you, says I. And you don't have to train or anything, says I, to him, you see. Says I, come on, you'll do it, you will, you will. Ah, oh, says he, the belly says I, I'll be on top of it. If you say no now, says I, you'll get me into trouble, you know. Ah, <laughs> oh, says he, all right. So that was it. Semi-final came. The barrel Tom Manny was, I told the lads that Tom was coming. And we were in the dressing room anyway, and the two boys that, that were playing with me were in with nice little bags and everything else, you know, real professional-like. And uh, the boys were saying to me, Tom's not coming. And I said, hey, he'll come, he'll definitely come, says I. No, Aidan, he was coming here at kick-off time and there's no sign of him. He's not coming, Aidan, the boys were saying. Says, I, he's coming. And next door in he comes, you know. 
And then he comes anyway, Gabbardine and coat on him and nothing else. And I says to him, where's your stuff, Tom? I said, see, I have it with me. And he put one hand in one pocket and took out, <laughs> took out his boot and put his hand in the other pocket and took out the other boot. <laughs> and said, see, I need a pair, I need a pair of tugs. I said, hey, that's no bother, we'll get you a pair of tugs. <laughs> and he went out and he played something half on the 40 and he, he had a blinder, so he had. So then we got through on to the final, and we were a bit lucky to win the final, but we did win it. And again, he had a great match, so he had. Like, the fact that he played gave the lads a great uplift in itself, you know. It was a long wait until until the final, but you were all the time below in Condon's field, training and running. And, and do you think his, his presence on the field now, that semi-final and the final, that lifted everybody around him? Of course it was. It was, it was a, the presence of a county man like it's Tom Condon's uh, name, you know, sure, it, was, it was brilliant. Oh, we were good to fair good team. We had Jerry McCarroll, and uh, Jerry was a great footballer now in... in which we were the after starting off, and we didn't have uh, no no background to football. And, and that game against Kilberry was that his last game for Drum Conrad? I'd say that was his last game. Tom was a very very quiet private man, very very quiet private man. And by Jingus, when the, at half time in the dressing room, now he he was telling the boys, "We'll have to get Doug in here." And and should they all listen to him? It was Drum Conrad. That was a new team to Drum Conrad. Now you know what I mean. Well, if Tom was missing Stabannon in any way, he had a comrade just up the road only too willing to talk about old times. Barney Lynch moved from Stabannon to Drumconrad 37 years ago after marrying into the parish. And with Tom being so close by, they forged a very close friendship. I got to know Tom when they came here and it brought back old memories about the football that was played years ago. And many's a chat we had about football with Tom. I remember Tom playing with Stabannon. In fact, growing up as, a, as an old-fashioned youngster, when they played the league matches, there was the that was passed at half time but come the championship games the oranges were brought and I always made me beeline out to Tom because I was guaranteed half an orange guaranteed that and maybe a few other few other fellas as well but Tom always I always tasted a bit of Tom's orange Barney also remembers the stories from 1963 and the preparations for that campaign Tom trained in a field at the back of his own house was the captain of the Conda team my neighbour God rest him Mickey Crosby just down the road uh, Mickey was the captain that year and Mickey I think was behind and a few other lads was behind Tom to take him out of retirement to, to play football that, uh, that particular year and he played for them and he won his, his championship medal in 1963 also the Bannon was over at that junior final that particular year you know sure, there's everyone had to go over to sure, Tom Conlon was playing and sure the parish just the Bannon I think was, was at that final that Sunday I remember one incident now in particular the Condor got to it we played Mead Hill our, our local rivals here in the final of a tournament and I was working in the pub in, in the village at the time and there was a few a few of the gay boys in during the week and I, was, I wasn't too long in the village at, uh, working around the village at the time and she were telling me what to, what to do with me and sure I'd be uh, this for and that little this for that you and little that for that you so I didn't know what to think but Tom happened to be there the same night he said nothing but on the Sunday of the game just about to take the field Tom was standing at the gate I never forgot this he just called me over and he coughed me the arm he said Tom had a hand you know because two men and he coughed me the arm he says are you alright I said I am Tom I look at see pass Max them ho boys during the week see late pass Max them boys whatever you do see I never forgot this whatever you do see don't let the banning down and that was it I don't think I did and we went on to win this Trina Conlon, daughter of uh, Tom, when you were growing up now in Drum Conrad, would your dad, would he have talked much about uh, football his past career or would he have talked much around the area about uh, all the achievements he had uh, as a footballer? He'd meet people and they'd always talk about football, football, and you'd hear bits that way. You know, like I suppose he never talked that much to us really, so he didn't. Yeah, we'd have heard more people talk, even still people, it's a, you know, if they met you, if, oh yeah, your daughter Tom Condon's like, you know, and uh, oh yeah, I remember him from football and come back years and then they'd tell you bits and pieces that happened that we would never have heard. You know, so I suppose, yeah. And do you find now, because he's gone, that she, maybe you might be a bit more interested in what he achieved during his career? Oh, a lot more, yeah. Like when we were young then, you kind of, you don't pass much remarks, you know, it just you grew up with it. It was just part of the talk at the time, you know. But then looking back now, I suppose you'd say, you know, why didn't I listen more? And why didn't I take more of an interest, you know, and ask him more? 
And Paddy, your brother Tom, he would have been, of course, very well known right across the country, not only for his exploits with Loud, but also for his province and uh, the various Railway Cup medals he would have won. I remember I had an uncle, he lived down in Cork, and uh, his wife died in Cork, and my mother and Tom went down to the funeral, and uh, they said that it was more sympathising with Tom than with, with, with her husband. <laughs> Kevin Behan, there was a very famous or infamous uh, incident involving Tom and well-known Dublin forward and later legendary Dublin manager Kevin Heffernan. It was a game between Louth and Dublin in the mid-1950s. Tell us about that. I always talk about the thing where we were playing in, in the order where he hung Heffernan in the net. Literally hung him in the net and he walked off the field. I didn't even wait for the referee to take his name. And the Gunner Brady was the referee. Subsequently, Cahill Young, a good friend of mine, attacked the Gunner. I says, that was a terrible thing down in Drawd. He says, that was only a warning offence. The Gunner didn't particularly like Heffernan. Now, Heffernan was a great, a great footballer, but subsequently, Tom and Heffernan made it up. But I will never forget that because he just walked off the field. Got the rivalry between Loud and Mead and Dublin, and they throw in awfully in our time. But that was, that was great football, you know, and it was hard football. I recall having a function on one occasion in uh, for the loud past and present above in the Fairways Hotel. And we invited Kevin Heffernan and um, his wife to it, along with a couple of others as guests. And I recall being in a company when she said she always loved to go to see loud play Dublin. Naturally, she was for Dublin. But there was one man she always loved to, to watch and look at, and he was Tom Conlon, because he was the most handsome man that ever put a jersey on. But the day he struck her Kevin, she wasn't too happy. <laughs> that ended the love affair, did it? That ended the love affair. And uh, it, it was a sad, sad, because on that occasion, that match was played in Drogheda in 1955. Dublin won the match. But it had a very happy ending, because I knew that Tom did not mean Kevin. Kevin was a gentleman, Kevin Heffernan. And it wasn't Kevin Heffernan that was intended for at all. It was his buddy, his twin, as it were, Ali Freeney. Because Ali had a habit of melting for all he was worth, you know. Afterwards, when Tom wasn't well, Tom asked me, did I know Kevin Heffernan? And I said, I did very well, since I worked with him in Crow Park on different GA committees. Well, he says, I'd like to talk to him. And Tom, at this stage, was on his last few months, as it were. And Kevin... I went to Kevin and I told him the situation. Kevin was down with Tom the next day and spent the whole day with him in Drumcondon at his home. And that's where Tom made his peace as it were with Kevin because he taught the world of Kevin Heffernan. And that's the way that ended. I even remember Kevin Heffernan coming down the week before he died. You know, and I think that has, was the first time they had spoken from the time they played football. So you had people like that calling which was lovely to see, you know. That meant a lot to do with them. You know, Daddy was wondering what Kevin thought of him and vice versa, you know, but like uh, Thomas says, made their peace, shook hands, you know, but like, I think that's football and that's the camaraderie with football. And Thomas, your dad, always maintained a great interest in Saban and Parnells and indeed just a few months before his uh, passing, he attended the official sod turning uh, of the new pitch in Saban in 1989. It was a proud moment from him. As you say, he, like, he wasn't well at the time, but, you know, he made every effort to be there for them and, you know, it was a privilege for him to do that, you know. I think it's totally ironic that the biggest, strongest man of the whole bunch of us was the first man to, to leave us. And it was terribly sad, you know, and he, he would take a lease of his life because he was strong. Little feckers like myself, I should be long gone. I can always remember at his funeral, I sat in the same seat as one of the great Mayo players. The captain of the Mayo team came to Tom's funeral, Sean Flanagan. And uh, I sat beside Sean Flanagan and Sean Boyle that day when in the church at Tom's funeral. And it was a great tribute to see Sean Flanagan there because he was the captain of the Mayo team that beat Loud that time in 50. The way he played that day and the pressure that he was under and how well he stemmed the pressure of all the Cork attacked 
in the first half. And the way then he came into the dressing room and he raised every man that was in that dressing room, every player that was in it, everyone that was in it, he raised them with what he said and what he outlined and told them that we had to win. We met regularly. Kevin Bean and Frank Lynch would be the main organisers, particularly Frank. Frank would always get us together now and again, you know, and we could crack. And uh, Dano, of course, would be there. Tom would be there. But Tom, of course, God rest him, was the first, first one to die. And it was a great loss. But he was a remarkable man. And one thing about him is, is I mean, at that time, the fullback took the kick out. And Tom would lash the ball up the field. But also, he would do it reasonably intelligently. He'd be looking for Dano. He was a great man to catch a high ball. Or he'd be looking for Jamie O'Donnell. He was also good in the air. You know, he, he was very intelligent that way. And he organised the whole defence. And uh, as Ollie Riley would say, God rest him, Ollie would say, he'd tell you when you did it wrong, but he'd tell you in a nice way. You know? <laughs> Tom Connor was really and truly a god, and a god to his old and Stabannon. But he'd be there coaxing you on, telling you maybe a half, telling you what you should have done or what you shouldn't have done, trying to keep you on the right road. And he'd never raise his voice, always talk nice and low to you. And nobody would ever hear what was going on or what was being said. I often come in here on my own in the quietness, and I'd shed a tear. They were my gods. All those loud footballers and Stabann and footballers. I mean that. They were my gods, every one of them. That's a fact. They would do anything for you, and you'd do anything for them. They were some men. Tom Shearman was another great man. Eddie Boyle was a beautiful, beautiful footballer and he won more Leinster Railway Cup medals. But to be very honest with you, if you say, from my experience at the time, which of them would you take to win in All-Ireland? So I take Tom. It's very simple. Taking up his position, Tom Conlon takes the resulting three up into the centre of the field. And the still of one point... Aoife Conlon, who's a granddaughter of the late Tom, well, the football genes uh, have obviously been passed down, uh, Aoife. You yourself, a fairly noted Gaelic uh, player, and uh, I suppose the biggest success you had a couple of years ago with your local club, D-Rangers. Yeah, we did. Um, 2014, myself and Brina Rowe, we captained the D-Rangers. We, we won the junior championship after finally three or four years get, trying to get to it. We won the junior championship we went on and won the Leinster Championship we were absolutely delighted with that hard work it does pay off in the end your grandfather of course Tom Conlon but the 57 link there's another 57 link with that D Rangers team of two years ago yeah Barney McCoy's two granddaughters Grace Malone and Orla Malone they were a big part of that team that year as well and um, yeah no they obviously have got the football after him as well so and growing up uh, Aoife have you been aware of your own grandfather's football pedigree and the amount of championships and leagues and whatever else he won during his career. Oh yeah, I have, and like, we've a framed piece of a newspaper right there from the 1957 All Ireland, and like I love love looking at that and reading that. Like I wish like, he was still alive when I was born to have met him. And um, yeah, no, I do have to ask Dad about all the matches that and the games that they won, and he was a big part of the Loud team and the Sabanan team as far as what everything that I've heard. <laughs> And Kevin Behan, not long after Tom passed away in 1990, the captain of 57, Dermot O'Brien, pens that great tribute in memory of the great Tom himself. A song that probably summed him up in the best way possible, The Mighty Oak. Oh, he was a very talented musician, but he'd be writing a song on it because he was the Mighty Oak. There's different types of oak, but Tom was the hardest oak. Oh, the Mighty Oak is fallen, and the forest it is still. There's a silence in the valley and a shadow on the hill. People will always say, Did you hear the song on the radio? Or, you know, it was about your father. And, you know, it always comes back, you know, and it'll always be there. So it was lovely for Dermot to do it for us, you know. The mighty oak is fallen to the ground. This is down to Tom Condon, Condon the The Mighty Oak was presented and produced by Colm Corrigan. With sincere thanks to all contributors, this programme was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.